When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Hey, this is DeRay, and we're going to pause to save the people. In this episode, it's me, Diara, Miles, and Kaya talking about the news that you don't know from the past week, the news that was underreported but really important about race, justice, and equity. And then I sit down and talk to the award-winning investigative reporter, J. David McSwain, to talk about his new book, Pandemic Inc., Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick. I know you heard stories about PPP fraud and all that other stuff, but I learned so much in this book and I wanted him on because I wanted to talk to an expert. So here we go. Hope you learned too. And my advice for this week is to don't give up on your friends. Like I have a friend who we used to talk. I saw them around and then like their life changed. They started dating somebody and they were really busy. And I would text and like, I didn't hear back, but I, you know, but, but I still, we never had a fallen out, care about her, good person. And I would like, when she was on my mind, I would text and da, da, da. And like, I would see that she would read it and like, she didn't reply. And then the other day I texted her and she replied and was like, Hey, da, da, da. And like, so much is going on. But it's one of those things where like, I could have just been like, you know what? I'm not going to reply, da, 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 da. But it was like, I didn't give up. We have a good friendship. She's a good person. I knew she was busy. And I wanted to make sure that I acknowledged every time she was on my mind. We had a great conversation the other day. She's back from under what she was dealing with. And like, it's dope. Don't give up on your friends. Family. Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Diara Ballinger. I'm Ozzy Johnson. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Feral Rapture. I'm Kaya Henderson. You can find me on Twitter at Henderson Kaya. And this is DeRay at D-E-R-E-Y on Twitter. <sighs> Lots going on as usual. But one of the main things we all know is going on, and it is, it is hot as we don't know what outside everywhere so much so that in china what are they doing closing factories turning down the lights doing all types of things um but you know at least they are trying to do something about uh to do some type of energy savings because i don't think we have any plan for that united states that's happening the other thing that is not hot temperature wise but in terms of tea is dennis rodman being approved to go to Russia to get Brittany Griner. That is fascinating to me. Mm. Like, between that and the China heat stuff, like, Earth is not beating we're in hell allegations. (laughs) 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 I need more proof. (laughs) And the fact that we had, like, somebody who was dipped in red as a president, I'm like... It's it's given it's given hell. It's my we're not we're not, we're not beating those allegations yet. <laughs> mm, um, this the Dennis Rodman going to Russia is fascinating. First of all, you know his friendships with these authoritarian dudes, Kim Jong Un in 
North Korea and Putin. I mean, literally, his quote was something like Michael well, Jordan in Chicago, all of them, all of them. Ouch. <laughs> Oh, um, anyway, gee whiz. I, I think my prediction is that Dennis Rodman has a higher than likely chance of success uh, for two reasons. On the one hand, let's acknowledge the work that is already being done. They've been in conversations around what a prisoner swap should could look like. And there are a bunch of people who are on the ground working on Brittany Griner's behalf every day. Um, so I don't want to act like that hasn't been happening. But it would be a tremendous embarrassment, I think, to the U.S. government if the outcast NBA rebel could go and accomplish something that the United States government could not. And so I think Putin might be predisposed to uh, giving Mr. Rodman whatever he wants, not just because it's inevitable that this is likely to happen, but also because he can give a little, you know, poke in the eye to the U.S. government. Yeah. And then um, I, I think you're completely right, Miss um, Kaya. I, it's so interesting how, to, how I have to switch from Auntie Kaya to Miss Kaya on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, Why um, switch? We are family. <laughs> right. But um, Auntie Kaya, I think you're totally right. And, I th- and as you were speaking, I thought about how... Um, Russia has been responsible for so many of the narrative buildings on social media and is really intelligent about knowing what is the uh, narratives and the arguments and the debates and the culture wars and the political wars that are happening in America and doing things specifically to start those things up. And I think that they know that the, the core of where we're at right now is celebrity and political power needs to, to stop overlapping. And I think that this move, just even if it's just all in vanity and optics, for a lot of people will seem will make people think that, wow, celebrity is still more politically powerful than um, uh, just our, our government system. And I think Russia wants us to continue to argue and be scared about that. Can I just say who, who, who someone who was a fake diplomat for a time or two? You know who the best diplomats are? Black people, obviously. So I'm not surprised <laughs> by this at all. Wait a minute, I wait a minute. You have go to over there. assertion. Why are black people the best diplomats? I mean, diplomats? Be- because I feel like we've have, we have to wear so many masks all the time. We have to be people pleasers. We have to be entertainers. We have to... We, all of these things that culturally we all just somehow are able to do and subscribe to and perform at like it just makes us good at going to places in the world and being beloved and I think also just about like black American culture globally I mean I I mean I'm in Portugal at an Indian British wedding and they were playing Dr. Dre all night long okay we create so, the culture baby that's what we do come on come mm. on so I'm not surprised. I think he will bring her home and we'll all have to be nice to Dennis Rodman for at least six months. <laughs> um, I will say that I was talking to a professor and he was telling me that there's like a long, long history of Russian involvement around race things in the country and that the, the internet has just like exacerbated it, but that that this goes back long, much further than than this moment, which was interesting to me. And it is so fascinating that you know, we talk about everything is about race and people think that we're being dramatic. But for a foreign country's best way to disrupt 
the entire thing is to amplify white supremacy. Like to be more racist is the strategy to like topple the government is truly fascinating. So uh, we'll be interested. It'll be interesting to see. And also like who I, when Dennis Rodman said publicly he got approved, I'm like, what was that call like? Like, who did you call? Do you know, like, did you call the state department? Like, how did you, did you call Biden? Did you call Putin? Like, cause you know, somebody has to let your passport. Like, I'm so confused about just like the how of this moment. Uh, which I'm interested in. I saw something, Dre, that said he went there and met with Putin in 2014. So I don't know what their relationship had been since that 2014 visit, but... So I do not have... Y'all know I love culture. And the thing about loving culture, specifically pop culture, where Blackness and pop culture meet, is that it's not always the deepest thing (laughs) I can find, but it will be a really interesting thing. And sometimes the most absurd things help me get to a really deep place because I do think what happens is when, uh, in pop culture is when something, something happens, it is a um, symptom of something else that's happening that can be deeper and more interesting. Um, So I say all to say is Kanye West definitely put clothes in a trash bag. (laughs) And told everybody to go search through them and to buy their stuff that way. And it was a really, I wouldn't say a really big deal, but it became kind of like political like fodder for a lot of people or in discussion just because A, a slow cultural news week, if you're not on Beyonce's PR team. And also, I think that anything that Kanye West does, we kind of like cite, uh, hyperanalyze it. In the article, which was on Pitchfork, it says the point of the sales tactic, West said, had been to promote a more egalitarian approach to clothing. I'm an innovator and I'm not here to sit up and apologize about my ideas, said West, before reiterating his oft-repeated talking points about media efforts to put him in a box. This is, a not, a, this is not a joke. This is not a game. This is not just some celebrity collaboration. This is my life. I'm fighting for a position to be able to change clothing and bring the best design to people. The one big thing about people having conversations with Kanye West that I think is interesting is that we we ignore this is and this is happening in this current moment with Wendy Williams and Kanye West in my opinion where we're ignoring the mental capacity of the people we're talking to and we know and we pretend like everything's normal and I think that because nobody is wants to be seen as, oh, I'm not a doctor. I don't want to misdiagnose anybody or say anything like that. I think that we have, like, foregone, like, common sense. Because it used to be a time where you, you're able to be like, mm, I don't think that this person is in the capacity to have the conversation that I'm trying to have with them or whatever. And I think us just foregoing that turns into exploiting them because we don't talk about what we're really observing. We're just pretending like everything's normal. And that is, to me, that's its own like cultural crime, right? The other thing is, because I'm a human and I'm full of contradictions, the other thing is I really do think that what he did was really interesting maybe not in the ways that he wanted it to be interesting but i thought it was really interesting that to me in america homelessness and uh is 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 the 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 cultural nightmare that a lot of us are in risk of experiencing but nobody wants to discuss how we do not talk about homeless people how we do not observe where homeless um uh what homeless people are doing how there are certain things that we do in order to just purposefully uh disappear homeless people and not be affiliated with it and that's so interesting that 
celebrity and that power and cultural power would have people maybe even emulating what homeless people do just because celebrities now involved. And it was really dystopian to me. Like, in my head, (laughs) when I first came to New York, because there's so many ridiculous New York themes, one of the jokes that I made was, oh, if you put something in Manhattan and you just put all the food in like a garbage can and call it the new hot chic restaurant and say that Rihanna went in, everybody will be interested in going to that new hot chic restaurant, even though we are saying no, it's that we we affiliate that with like homelessness and poverty. But given the right social power and celebrity around it, we uh, there's a group of people who will participate in it. And I kind and I felt this that I said as a joke, just being like flipped to somebody, um, and about my how I felt about Manhattan. But then looking at this, I'm like, huh. <laughs> Maybe I was maybe it was less of a joke, and it seems as though there is just a slew of uh, people who are not being necessarily romanced by decadence or glamour or flash or or any of those other things that we can see why people desire. It's just simply celebrity. It's just simply cultural power, and I think that's really, really, really interesting. And again, just tying that into what we were talking about earlier with Dennis Rodman and um, Trump. That is the American, that's the great American currency, it seems. If we're not backing money with gold anymore and we're not doing that, I would like argue to say we're backing money with celebrity. And I think certain times, moments like this are, is proof that celebrity is getting bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger and getting more and more complex. And, and people are kind of falling for it. Not everybody, but enough everybody. To swing a state. <laughs> um, that's my news. That's my thought. That's my thought. That's my conversation I'm bringing to the table. Um, <laughs> what y'all think? And it's okay if y'all don't think nothing because y'all are strong, intelligent black women that don't got time to think about clothes and trash bag. That is okay too. <laughs> So I actually thought this was like a fa- I-, I didn't think that, you know, Kanye wasn't able to describe it this way, but I thought that this was a beautiful mockery of capitalism. Because first of all, there's not a Black person I know who is rummaging through these. Like, I, this is the part of the common sense. Like, I literally don't know anybody who would go into an actual store and rummage through trash bags at the Gap to buy clothes. Like, that is, it is so comical. Like, I imagine having to talk to my grandmother about this and her thinking that this is some wild joke that we're in on because, like, it just can't be real. Kai, you disagree? But, but well, you didn't think that people would pay, I don't know, however much they pay to have them ugly dinosaur eggs on their feet running around the place, and they do. (laughs) And so... And black and black people's black and the thing about that too, black people's black cultural currency works better on people who are not black. Oh, for sure, for sure. It is just such a good mockery, though. Of the, I think it's a mockery of fast fashion too, because the reality is like this stuff costs pennies on the dollar to make, and the markup is actually just so wild. So to put it in trash bags and have people rummage through it, in some ways, to me, when I first saw it. Outside of the like, Kanye is being Kanye, and I love the meeting at Gap where he forced these people to put this in trash bags and put it on the floor. Like, I don't even know what the like how they did that, but I am interested in like the indictment of fast fashion. That I think this when I saw it, it was an indictment of fast fashion that like it cost pennies on the dollar. We're making people rummage through trash bags. Um, 
the part about homelessness, I don't really like that. All of it feels like one big mockery to me and, and at best a social critique, which Kanye cannot, was not able to deliver. I wish y'all could see Kai's face, by the way, everybody, because it is great. I can't wait to hear what she got to say. So, uh, so on the one hand, I mean, I don't understand how it could be an indictment of fast fashion while at the same time charging people exorbitant prices for but this that's stuff. that's the point. And this the contradiction is, supposed- is the point. Well, but people actually go buy it. Like, I don't think that people get that point, right? I think people think that they are. And so maybe, I don't know, but that that might be above my pay grade. Um, There was one online commenter who said, Balenciaga and Kanye's fetish with the homeless as fashion muses is everything that's wrong with billionaires. They no longer see the plight of people. They don't see humans that are suffering. They see opportunities to be edgy and profit from it. And it's disgusting. And that pretty much feels like I feel a little bit about it. I think this is ridiculous. I take, I, I totally appreciate Miles's point about us treating people with mental health issues like everything is normal and, you know, intellectualizing it from an artistic perspective. Kanye is going through all kinds of mental health issues like Wendy Williams. And there was a time in American journalism where people would be like, you know what, we shouldn't report on this. This is like beyond the pale. And we are like, nope, if he's going to say it, we're going to show it and whatever. And I think that is a travesty. Like I deeply worry about, I, I look at kids on the Metro and on the bus, you ride in the Metro or the bus, and but you got Yeezys on that cost. I literally don't know how much. And this the you know the celebrity the celebritization of these consumer products um, that young people can't afford but are you know chasing after just and I know it's not just Kanye right this is everything and everybody but it the, none of this feels right in my spirit and so I'm just gonna leave that there and I think that like a lot of things. I totally love the piece because it just sounds like to me that in order to truly critique something, you can't collude with it. And if you're if you're colluding with it, then the critique kind of gets absorbed in just the participation of it. Right, that makes- that's what I was trying to say, Miles. <laughs> yeah, that right there. You can't critique and collude. Do it, baby. There Do we it. go. There we and go. Then, Wrap it up. And then so that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. And then I think you know generationally we've had. Um, from Jordans to Yeezys, we've had these kind of cultural fashion things for each generation that we that we reached towards in order to um, feel good about ourselves and as status symbols, as what we believe in. And I think that's you invest in that even more the younger you are and the more you're trying to find yourself out, find yourself out, you define yourself by these things. I think it's the first time. So I don't think that part's unique. I think it's the first time that, you know... It was Versace chains and it was gold and it was things that looked royal and decadent. Now it's, you know, dinosaur eggs as you so that great. This di- is dinosaur eggs and trash bags. So it's interesting that 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 it's not so interesting to me that these two things are happening because I think these always happen. I think what it's happening over is saying something about the psyche of where we're at right now because you know who who who, who didn't want to spend three of their 
three of their checks for a cootie sweater, but they were cool looking and they looked fly or Versace things with the, you know, with the gold. You're like, they, they make sense, even if it was still silly. But now it's things that kind of feel a little dystopian and, 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 and almost mocking the same people who are participating in it and saying, look at you doing something that you're probably one or two paychecks away from living and you're, and you're participating in this. So it's, it's interesting. Oh, see, we got to a, a smart place. We did, and I just I want to say too because I unfortunately have given a lot of thought to Kanye because I'm still hoping for a return of the George Bush doesn't care about black people Kanye, and you know what? And I this is probably a jump, but I feel like he is the Eldridge Cleaver of culture. Like of all the Black Panthers that are beloved, we always knew Eldridge Cleaver was one that was like. Oh, there he go. So in his book, and I, because I've read all the Panther biographies, autobiographies, Eldred Cleaver talks about how he would rape white women as a revolutionary act, right? So it's just like ridiculous ideology that are so steeped in mental illness and the implications of racism, but it's still like a voice and and a message that people are somehow allowing and absorbing. So I don't know. I just think of it as just like, he's not the first person in our culture that has meant so much, but also <laughs> has just, comp- you know, has, has meant so much, but also has just cr- created space for all the things that you all were talking about in a very smart way, you know? And so I just, I, that's, I guess that's how I'm just thinking about it. It's just like, this isn't the first time we've had somebody that's very much a part of who we are speak wildly and not in like a Ben Carson type of way, but in like a way where we're just like, we maybe we're, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're holding on to you still. We need to let you go. We're holding on to you, but um, and 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 there's a relevance there that he always seems to have. Um, so I don't know. That's I've just been trying to think about it more as like an ideological way as opposed to like pop culture way. And white people deserve that. Like I think I, as you were speaking, I thought about the Nikki Giovanni and James Baldwin conversation, the piece where she was like, "You go to work and you smile for the white man. You come home and you like hit me." And I do think there's something really cool about a celebrity moment where a lot of black celebrities are just acting out where it used to be, you know, and I love me some Diane Carroll, you know, and I love Harry Belafonte and I love Cindy, um, Sydney Poitier. Like I love those, um, those family members, but that's some, that's an Oprah. Like that's some heavy respectability. I am acting right at your dinner table and maybe at my own kitchen table. I'm really going to say what I really feel. And I think that it's kind of like high time that, you know, if you want to deal with the black goodness and joy and, 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 san- and, and moral sanity and clarity in these like cultural and political storms, then you also have to deal with, quite frankly, you that know, part. The other, the dark the rage, the rage, the things that maybe feel, maybe feel confusing, feel like insanity, feel like those things. That is all that is a, that is just as much a part of our unit. The moon is just as much a part of the black universe as the sun is. And I think for a long time, you, we, we've been pretending that we're 24 seven sunshine in order to get, um, to, to be able to be looked at. And now it's not happening. So I agree that it's probably a necessary evil, but 
it's evil. <laughs> I, I, I love this podcast because only here can we go from Kanye to Eldridge Cleaver Listen. to, to Harry Belafonte and my friend Diane We brought it I love it. I love it. I love it. I, love I will it. say the last thing about Kanye is that he's also a great example of what happens when somebody's so famous that the rules get stretched. Because those posts about Pete and those videos of him, like somebody not famous, they'd be kicked off the platform. Like it wouldn't even be a conversation about like, could you stay with the beheading of somebody you clearly know this is not, it's this isn't a random piece of film. Like it would so obviously be harassment and, and but, yet Kanye but do you remains. Think, do you think that is because people are cutting him slack or because the profitability of keeping Kanye on the platforms is higher than, right? It's not because we think he should be able to do whatever he wants to do, but him off of these platforms is actually detrimental to the platforms. The platforms, right? Like, you understand? I think it's a little bit of both. I also think that they, I think Kanye is so intense that they are also worried about the backlash. Like, he will be so wild to Facebook yeah. yep, if yep. they kick him off. Then I think yep. they're like, you know what? Let's just take the post down. <laughs> Let, let's like keep taking the post down, but him off, he will, you know, he's so famous. He'll like talk about us in every other forum he has in a way that the cost just doesn't seem to be worth it. But well, but that's not, a, but as you know, the question is not like, a, is it right or is it wrong? Like those videos are clear. I mean, it's, that is harassment. But also we're living in an echo. So yes, Trump is not in office anymore. And the th- But I think, A, the things that happened before Trump, before the election, before him doing anything, there was a lot of absurdity and a lot of ridiculousness that happened in order to allow that pinnacle, to allow that moment to happen with Trump. So I'm talking about, I'm thinking about Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton. I'm thinking about uh, Reagan being a Hollywood star and then getting into office. I'm thinking about like all the ways that we've kind of set the, set it up. And we're still looking we're still living in the echo of a lot of absurdity and i think that as soon as you talked about that i thought about kathy griffin and the trump thing and i think that that was a really ridiculous moment and i think that she did something that was inside her space as an artist and a comedian and wasn't like it, it, it we've seen that happen before his reaction was ridiculous and i think that just certain things we've lived with live with where it's like kanye west is not the most ridiculous thing that we're seeing, and it's and it's like if we if when if we start censoring him, we're real. It's it's not the most absurd thing that we've seen from the most powerful person in the world. <laughs> mm. We we haven't gotten there yet. There's so. that. There's that. Don't go anywhere. More pods of the people's coming. Hosts of Amani State of Mind, Dr. Amani Walker and Meg Scoop Thomas take a deeper look at what it takes to make friendships last and what role they play in your mental health. The ladies are also diving into the reality of many types of relationships and the emotions that arise from them. From your spouse to your parents to grief and anxiety, Imani State of Mind is a show to talk about it all. Listen to new episodes of Imani State of Mind every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, 
Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Well, um, my news is about a very interesting, um, not even proposal. It is a, um, a contractual agreement that the Minneapolis Public Schools and the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers, which is the teachers union, have struck that supports the retention of um, the recruitment and retention of teachers from underrepresented groups. And basically, um, in Minneapolis Public Schools, which DeRay is um, knows intimately having led human capital efforts in that school system. Um, and not just Minneapolis, all over the place, um, there has been a concerted effort to improve the connection between teacher demographics and uh, student demographics. So for example, in Minneapolis, in fact, something like 67% of teachers are white and only 37% of of uh, of kids are white, right? 
And basically what that means is you have larger representations of African-American kids and Latino kids and Asian kids and whatnot, and the teaching demographics don't actually match up. And there's been a whole lot of research that shows that when kids are taught by people who look like them, um, academic success happens uh, more easily. In fact, academic success is, uh, kids have better um, educational outcomes, better emotional outcomes, better behavioral outcomes in classes with same race teachers. Um, In Minneapolis public schools, black and Hispanic students are more likely to be disciplined and less likely to graduate. And fewer than one in 10 pass the state math test and only one in five can read at grade level. And so you have this situation where kids are not doing well. The research shows that same race teachers actually have outsized impacts And the district and the teachers union have acknowledged past discriminatory practices, which have um, disproportionately impacted teachers, the hiring of teachers of color. And so now they're trying to fix that, right, by prioritizing the hiring and retaining of teachers of color. Everybody sort of agrees with the idea that you would do your best to recruit and retain teachers of color. Except when the rubber meets the road and we get to situations like what we call excessing or what in the rest of the world is called layoffs. And what happens is schools don't have enough money to pay for all of the things that are uh, hitting their books. Personnel are the most expensive resource. And so at some point you have to start laying off teachers. And I know you're asking, why are we laying off teachers when we have a teacher shortage? Well, The way schools are funded is tied to enrollment. And so if enrollment in your school district decreases, which has happened all across the country as a result of the pandemic, if enrollment decreases, then you have less money. If you have less money, you got to lay off teachers. That's just the simple gist of it. And what the Minnesota Federation of Teachers has agreed to in their contract is that they will lay off teachers... um, in seniority order, except if the teachers represent an underrepresented category. Basically, it means that white teachers are going to get laid off before teachers of color. And of course, um, Fox News is having a field day with this, and people are calling it, you know, the most racist thing they've ever seen, and it's against the law and all of this jazz. Um, But if you really pull it apart and discuss the nuances of it, there are some pretty interesting reasons why the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers, oh, which, by the way, is led by a group of white women and represents disproportionately a group of white women, have agreed to this policy decision. And so you get into this conversation. This is where politics and education intersect in really weird ways because, of course, the right has a whole lot to say um, about this, what they're calling a race-based approach to teacher layoffs. But what people won't say is there's been a race-based approach to hiring prior to this. There's been a race-based approach to laying teachers off. In fact, if they lay teachers off the regular way, it would make the district's teaching force more white and give uh, give kids of color an even lower chance of being successful, given all the research. And the person who actually, so the the article that I'm citing comes from the New York Post. 
But uh, Michael Harriet, in, who writes for The Griot, did an amazing analysis, which from a very logical and clear standpoint, asks big, good questions, right? Like, why are teachers being laid off? Why can't Minneapolis pay its teachers? You know, why would people agree to reverse racism? And he literally takes down each argument in an article that I think is worth reading because we can react to the headlines and whatnot, but if we're really thoughtful about what it means to educate children of color and providing them with the best resources that they possibly um, can have, then it is a very complicated conversation to think about who gets laid off in what order and why. The point that, that Michael Harriet makes that I think is hard for us all to grapple with is that if you are pursuing equity, somebody loses. There's no way to redistribute resources and make things more equitable without somebody losing. And I think that is, everybody is in agreement that kids who need more should get more, only just not at my expense. And I think that is the big conversation that we're really having without saying that we're having it. And that is that some folks don't want to lose what they've had. I'm going to leave that right there. And I'll say, you know, I was surprised by this because two reasons. One, I used to lead staffing for a human capital in the school system there or for the whole school system. And the Minneapolis teacher's contract is one of the wildest documents I've ever seen. They've negotiated everything. Like how many minutes you can be in the hallway. I mean, it's like so, it's very intense. And to get this in must have been, I mean, like the fact that it's in the contract is actually really impressive. And I am frankly shocked that the union and the district got to a point where this was actually something they codified in the contract. So shout out to them because I had to live through that contract and it was it was stuff that like, you know, we're counting minutes and you're like, we didn't need to negotiate this. The second thing though is that layoff, like Kai said, the layoff stuff is bad everywhere. I mean, it's like a nightmare process and I had to do it in Baltimore and I remember fighting with the teachers union about laying off the worst teachers. Now, mind you, we had 6,000 teachers. It was like 70 of them across the entire district were rated like the 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 worst possible thing. And we were like, well, if they're in the areas that we need to lay people off, we should probably lay off the teachers who like, I mean, it's in Baltimore at the time, it was very hard to be in the lowest. I mean, it was it was hard to be in the highest, but it was also hard to be in the absolute lowest. And we were saying to the teachers union, like the best thing for kids would be like, if we gotta have people go, then like the teachers in the absolute bottom should be... And when I tell you they fought us tooth and nail, and we were like, guys, like this is, it really makes no sense. And I do think that when the lens for all this becomes what is the best thing for kids and how do we do the work that we do right, these things make a lot of sense. And I'll tell you, when I was in Minneapolis, Minneapolis public schools had the lowest performing Black students in the state of Minnesota and the highest performing white students in the state of Minnesota. And I'll never forget, I went to one school that they taught, you know, I taught in New York, open up an after school center in Baltimore. I've seen kids at all ranges of ability to control their behavior. So they tell me this school's off the chains. I'm like, well, let's go see. I go in, the kids are just loud. That's it. Nobody's hitting, throwing, like they are all seated and loud. I'm like, if this is the, this is the behavior, I'm like, their whole family's loud. Loud is with the, the neighborhood's loud. Like, that's not the behavior. You're suspending kids for being loud and this is it. I'm like, y'all, take me back to the, like, I got to go to the office. This is silly. Um, but I, I saw the way racism 
impacted our schools and it was truly wild. I won't. Um, I, a, I just learned so much from just even hearing y'all have this discourse. I love when y'all talk about education. <laughs> so it just, it, it educates me. Um, the other thing that I was thinking about is this is a, a symptom, a sad symptom of what happens when the go- when you put things like education through a system like capitalism, white supremacist capitalism, no less, and then everything becomes about money. And I feel like this is one of those like sad, re- re- to me, like reactions to it. And then the other piece <laughs> that Auntie Kaya said that's always going to ring true is that don't use this as political fodder. Don't use this as a moment in order to scream reverse racism, to scream all these other things, and then not care once the heat from this story leaves. Because if this was something you truly cared about, there are ways to get in and to advocate all the time. Don't just care now because you're able to, you know, falsely... Uh, support an argument because of this like one isolated moment if you look at it the right way for the right lens and just excuse all common sense it's so intellectually dishonest and cruel to really see this moment and use it as a way to uh, create this uh, fictive race war that's in people's heads well born in Minneapolis family's all still there my mom's favorite expression is I wouldn't raise a chicken in Minnesota and that's why I was not raised there. My cousins that have gone to public school, a couple of which, their moms, my aunts have gone to the school and their Black children were facing the wall where the white kids in the class were facing the teacher. So I can give you a million antidotes about how Black kids are treated in Minneapolis public schools just from my family's perspective. So I'm excited to see this. I hope it makes a difference. Um... Yeah, thanks, thanks for thanks for bringing it, Kaya. I think now I understand what happened because yes, I am not an expert on um, education. I am, however, a spiritualist, and I think me and Dara need to come together and do a séance for Prince and bring Prince down and haunt Minneapolis. And that's what we need to do. We need to get together on that. And we got y'all, y'all, y'all handle y'all's business, and we'll. I was. I'm gonna stand in the back and do whatever you want me to do. I light the candles. We need purple sage. Not guys that I'm gonna stand in the back. You crazy? We we need purple sage. We need a cup of glass of water from the um from the Lake Minnetonka, and we can get on my and not the lake. Right in the middle of the lake. <laughs> and we gonna and we gonna and we gonna and we gonna get Prince back and we gonna haunt the people who are um, making Minneapolis a horrible place for black children. And he'll come back for that. Jesus came back for less. <laughs> Jesus came back for less. And Miles continues. Right. That's the quote. My news is from Artnet, and it's just like a combination of all my favorite things and favorite historical figures. And so it really starts with Isaac Julian, who is now doing this incredible um, exhibit, but like film piece at the Barnes Foundation in Philadelphia. But where I know Isaac Julian from is he years and years ago in the 90s did a movie called White, uh, what is it? Blackface White Mask. Um, that was basically about France Fanon and about the revolution in, in Algeria in the 60s. I love France Fanon because one of the things my white college did is expose me to 
um, The Wretched of the Earth, which is one of my all-time favorite books. And why Franz Fanon was so incredible was because he was a psychiatrist. And so a lot of what he talked about was actually the impact of racism on the Black psyche. Um, and it's so crazy that we're this is kind of all related to, to what we were talking about earlier around Kanye and Eldridge Cleaver and all these other things. Just to Miles' earlier point, like we don't talk about the darkness, the spiritual, the psychic darkness that racism causes. And Franz Fanon years and years ago had done so much scholarship around this. So Isaac Julian, so that's how I know him from 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 that moment. And now he's created this work around Elaine Locke, who was also obviously one of my favorites. So Elaine Locke, we know, is the first Black Road scholar, incredibly brilliant, also the founder, really, of the Harlem Renaissance. And he's also called, you know, the founder of, like, Black modernism. And my other favorite thing about Elaine Locke is, if you all have ever read um, The Big C by Langston Hughes, Elaine Locke literally shows up one day at Langston's apartment, like, knocks on the door, like, on his flat in Paris. And is like, hey, I've been writing you letters. Now I'm here. I'm on vacation. Let's hang out. And at this point, Elaine Locke is very, very, like significantly older than Langston Hughes. But he wines and dines Langston Hughes all around Paris. They go to the opera. They do all these things. And it's kind of like Langston's like entree into like the like black elite literati. Langston is writing about it to County Cullen, who's also one of my favorites. Because remember, County Cullen married W.E.B. Du Bois's daughter but then they had to get a divorce because obviously he was a gay man. So it just is like all these juicy black historical connections that I just love and would wish somebody would just write a book about all of this. And I also, you know, and I, I love Isaac Julian and I love what he does in terms of really celebrating the Harlem Renaissance and how there was a, like a, a, a liberation around sexuality that somehow just did not continue as we moved into the black arts movement, as we moved into the, um, you know, the black power movement and I just wish we would spend more time just focusing and celebrating and indulging in the Harlem Renaissance and all of the beauty and joy and just juiciness that came out of the Harlem Renaissance. So really, Isaac Julian was kind of just like my entree and him. I'm going to try to get to Philadelphia to see what he has going on there. And the other thing that he has there, it's like really in context so the, the Barnes Foundation was, I forget the guy's last name, something Barnes, but he was one of the early collectors of African art, African sculpture. And so the Barnes Foundation has a ton of that. And so there's also this conversation between Barnes' idea of art and how art should be interpreted and really like him believing as a curator, he wanted to tell you what you should take from the art. And Elaine Locke on the other side being like, he feels like art is a, a way to get you, you know, art should be a way, art should be interpreted whatever you're bringing to it, whatever context you have to it. So there's just like this interesting conversation happening there but with, you know, the work around Elaine Locke being amongst the this kind of, this this collection that Barnes had put together. So all that to say, it's an interesting article. Isaac Julian, I think, is a genius and fabulous. If you can watch, it's old, Uh, But if you can watch his early films, they're incredible. The other film that I hadn't seen that came up in this article was Finding Langston. I don't know if y'all have seen that either, but it was in the 90s and it was, yes. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to try to, it's on like Moombi, like M-U-B-I dot com or something. I love the app Moombi. I mean, I don't love the, I mean, beep until we. (laughs) (laughs) 
but that was maybe we should do we should you know do do a film do a screening and cocktail around that one because i'm super excited to see it so just wanted to share all this black beauty with y'all so 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 good um I love finding Langston, and then it's like, 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 fun fact that like none of Langston Hughes, his family did not let the reason why you don't really hear a lot of the poetry or anything like that is because his family would not let him be in that uh, his uh, work be used for that film because it explored Langston as a um, as a as a as a queer person, and the estate estate said, oh, <laughs> not on our watch. Um, I love Elaine Locke. So I've been a little bit obsessed with Elaine Locke and for, since the pandemic, um, my old room before I moved in, um, with, uh, my boyfriend, um, <laughs> my old room, my old, my old roommate, um, got like the issue of like fire magazine and had so many, um, just like just different things that were happening during the Harlem Renaissance and I really got to consume it as an adult and I had the time to really do it without feeling like I needed to read something else um, that felt more productive and I really just soaked it all in and I really fell in love with Elaine Locke and I'm a human story person like even the 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 work of his life and then also the um, the tragedy of like, kind of like his like loneliness and him being a queer, like a queer person and, and, and how that informed everything else that he did. I just think that he was such a such a such an interesting character. And to your piece about us all studying it, what I did find um, and maybe this is one of the reasons why I felt like it kind of intuitively guided to read it. I did find some interesting echoes of what was happening during that time inside of classism, inside of a black, no, black classism, black elitism, and the separation of black thought and art and idea creation actually being hindered because there was this like internal classism and respectability politics uh, separating things. I was like, well, that sounds familiar. <laughs> that feels like something that's happening today too inside of so much of um, black art and black culture. And I think that the more we read about things because we hear Zora Hurston and Elaine Locke and um, uh, Langston Hughes and we hear all these different names and I think that history kind of just kind of makes everything flat and together I'm like these people didn't like each other they all like <laughs> they and you know what I mean and then like even to, to the point like Zora Hurston calling the group of writers she hanged, hanged out with um, the Niggerati and saying like no we're not with them and we are anti-respectability anti-classism anti-non-provocative um, uh, thought to be honest and anti all those other things like that is I, to me it's like fundamental to see like how we're arriving at the to me the dichotomy that black cultural creation and art and politics are at now because so much of it is informed by respectability politics and, uh, and classism. So thank you for bringing to this. I'm going to, I stand everything you bring, DRU. I want to, can, can I be your, can, can, can I be your nephew niece? Nephew niece and just, <laughs> just go everywhere you go. <laughs> take, take, cult, cult Already. 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 There's a great podcast on um, Zora Neale Hurston and the Niggerati and the whole anti-respectability movement um, on Girl Trek's podcast. So for people who don't know, Girl Trek is a an organization that um, supports black women, black girls and women walking for health, for community. Um, and they get you out to walk, but they create these great black history podcasts where you're learning about different 
black women and men across history and liberation or futurism or whatever, whatever. And they've got a great episode on the Nigarati and this whole, you know, this whole backlash within the Harlem Renaissance between the elite folks and the people who identified more with the people. It's worth checking out. This is one of those weeks where I learned more. So I did not know much about Elaine Locke, had really read a ton about Elaine. I'd heard the stories about Elaine and, and Langston Hughes, um, but I don't have much to add. This was a learning. I learned from you all and I learned from the reading. I was like, okay, let me do some reading. It is funny. During the protest, people were like, have you read it? I'm like, no, they're shooting at us. I have not read. So I feel like I am <laughs> getting up on the reading now and I added this to the list. Boom. So, yeah, start with the new Negro that is the one, you know. There's so many, there's this like little meme thing that I saw people, one, I need to figure out who it is. I'll bring it to the podcast next week because it wasn't people's one particular company or like person but like um have you never read um octavia butler and they like then had like a whole bunch of questions about your interest and then like had a whole bunch of tiers of questions that kind of made you arrive at your perfect things and they did it with like audra lord octavia butler tony morrison bell hooks and i thought that was such in james baldwin and i thought that that was such a cool way your your commentary reminded me um DeRay, I thought that was such a cool way to take out the shame of not reading something. And I think that sometimes, and even with me, I was an only child, so I read a lot because I was really lonely. So there's a lot, I read bell hooks in middle school, in high school, and a lot of the stuff that people read that are like kind of canon, I read really early on because of loneliness. But then I would notice that a lot of people were scared to admit that they weren't familiar with something because they thought it was like maybe an indictment on their commitment or their intelligence or whatever to certain things. And um, I don't know that the idea of like reading Elaine Locke in my 30s and when I'm, my frontal lobe is. (laughs) Fully developed. I think think that's right. And you know, one thing that I do, I was encouraged to do by a really dear friend of mine, Kareen, is I read Mama Day by Gloria Naylor every year. Mm. And every year I take away something different from it. So I think okay, definitely onto something there, Mom. So let me tell you what I want to do if you'll indulge me. So at my company, Reconstruction, which teaches Black history, Black culture, Black literature, we put out a great Black books list, right? And the idea, what we ask ourselves is what do we want all kids, all Black kids to read by the time they graduate high school, um, so that they have an, a fully informed Black identity. And the, the, uh, it's our attempt to redefine the canon with Black authors and Black literature. And of course, we know that there's no 20 set of books or 100 books or whatever, whatever. And so it is a dynamic list that we continue, we push out usually every holiday, Juneteenth, Black History Month for Christmas. That way, when people are looking for um, books to buy for kids in their lives or adults in their lives, they have a fresh perspective. And I would love to do the Pod Save the People version of the Great Black Books list, where each of us contributes books that have changed our lives to a list that we can put out for our listeners and we'll share with our Reconstruction family. But I do think that um, reading is a is a lifetime of learning. If you didn't read it when you were in middle school or high school, there's still time. 
And even just having books in your atmosphere, research shows, even if they're unread, that is good for your brain. And so hold I would on, love to, send me that link because <laughs> how, how, how I'll buy ten and read and read none. That's, oh God. Yes, that's okay. That's good. But there is it is it also is an opportunity to support Black authors and to get conversations going in the community. And so if you all would, I will send around an email asking us for our best black books uh, recommendations and put together a pod, save the people, great black books list. That would be so cool. I was, I was just talking to my, um, my boyfriend about how everybody's like love. And I love when people read bell hooks. Cause I think bell hooks is like that. She, I love bell hooks, but Everybody reads All About Love, and maybe everybody reads um, Feminism is for Everybody. But I was like, you know what? Because we're talking about child, talking about children, and, you know, how we want children to go into this world and stuff like that if we have them together. And I'm like, you know what? I want everybody before they turn on another television to read Real to Real by Bell Hooks, Black people in media representation. Like, you, like to me, it is the protection that you need in order to consume media as a Black person responsibly. And I think that, that I, I, I think that was the one book that I did not read until my 20s. And I'm like, ugh, I wish I got had that before I saw, before MTV and BET got to me. So I love that idea. Love, 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 love. I want to reread uh, Parable of the Sower. I remember reading it the first time. And Ooh. now I'm like, oh, this is timely. <laughs> I need to reread. I we just reread, reread that with my book club because right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so my news is back to the heat. And it was something that I was surprised about is that UPS, uh, UPS drivers are stuck in cars that ain't got no heat. And I just didn't know this. I like, you know, I, I think I understood that UPS is really big. I I think I didn't know that UPS is the world's largest package delivery country, uh, company and among the biggest employers in the country. I just like, I think I missed some of the scope of UPS actually, but there are drivers who have photographs of their cars being, or the trucks being over 150 degrees in the back of the truck, which is wild. Uh, Dave Reeves, the president of Local 767, one of the Teamsters unions that represents the drivers, said they're vomiting, their bodies are shutting down. It's awful, which I didn't know. And this is also with the USPS, the Postal Service. Um, The government records show that since 2015, at least 270 UPS and USPS drivers have been sickened and in many cases hospitalized from heat exposure. And we already talked about like the heat waves are happening. It is bad. But what I was really shocked by was UPS's response. UPS, and I quote, in not putting air conditioners in the trucks, uh, UPS said, quote, our package delivery vehicles make frequent stops, which requires the engine to be turned off and the doors to be opened and closed about 130 times a day on average. The health and safety of our employees is our highest priority justifying not putting air conditioners in the cars because they have to open and close the doors is wild. And they already make a gazillion dollars. This won't break the bank. And now going to USPS, this is also an issue with USPS where the government data shows that about 34% of the vehicles have air conditioning and an additional 66% have fans. But it didn't even dawn on me, like especially with UPS being a private company, I just assumed they were air conditioned because like I, I like couldn't imagine in the summer driving around 
having to carry those boxes to people's houses and get back in the car into heat just feels wild to me. So I wanted to bring it here because obviously, uh, you know, who are all the essential employees in the country? Poor people and black and brown people. So I wanted to bring it here. Thank you for bring, um, for bringing this. And I think, you know, I'm totally guilty because of <laughs> just how baked in UPS and just delivery service in general are into like daily lives. I think that sometimes you just figure everything's going well or you just don't think about it because it's just, I think sometimes you can see something so often that it almost becomes invisible as if like just as much actually seeing something so often and not thinking about it can make the workers um, just as invisible as, you know, literally them being like disappeared and at a, at a hospital or, or something like that where you don't necessarily interact with them. And I think that is so important for workers to, I love that this article made it to being written and put out there because I think it's so important for those workers to be able to advocate for themselves because we do just assume, if you don't say anything, we do just assume everything's going well. And you're right. Those people, the people who are doing UPS and delivery services are us. They're black, they're black folks. And in, in Brooklyn, those, the only people I see doing, doing UPS and Amazon deliveries are Black folks. And you see how loud though the Amazon um, critiques and, and protests got. And I think that if things that are happening that are treacherous and uh, horrendous to people's bodies are happening with UPS, I'm super glad that they got the platform to be able to screen for their rights because we need UPS, obviously. <laughs> like that during the I think it only got exacerbated during the pandemic that this is a service that we are, this become a necessity, it's become like the other water in America in a lot of ways. Um, I got the, like, this is so appalling to me. First of all, like being in a hot tin truck for hours on end is miserable. Um, and the fact that only some of the vans have air conditioning is ridiculous when juxtaposed against the following data, the consolidated revenues for UPS were at 24.8 billion, which is up 5.7% from last year. Their consolidated operating profit of 3.5 billion is up 8.5% from last year and up 9.3% on an adjusted basis. Basically, that means that UPS is making 10% more in billions of dollars than what it made last year, in part because we're all ordering every single thing online and having it delivered. And you mean to tell me that folks who have these kinds of quarterly earnings can't put fans and air conditionings in the trucks, can't reduce the time on routes so that people actually have time to go to a decent bathroom so that all the water that they're drinking has a place to go. Like this, this is not a travesty. This is an issue of will. We know what it would take to keep these drivers safe. Um, even when the drivers say they're sick, there doesn't seem to be a clear response that doesn't prevent people from dying or going to the hospital. And so if UPS really cares about their people, then they need to do something ridiculously different. That's all. You know what this brings to mind as well is like all the foolishness around FedEx. And like, I can't, I was searching for the article, but it's not popping up. But just in terms of like, 
at FedEx at their big plant in Memphis, which obviously is black folks are mostly employed there and they're hourly because they don't want to make them uh, salaried uh, employees because they have to pay for benefits, et cetera. But I think it's probably similar, similar at UPS where there are pickers and packers and, <laughs> and there's so much similarity between an institution that has shaped and framed the legacy of America to these parcel companies. Like I, I think, so this is, that's where it takes my mind to like, I guess I'm not surprised by this because of just the very structure of how these companies are operating, who they employ, how they employ them, what benefits they give, what benefits they, they, you know, they, they don't give how they push back against you, you know, unions, etc. So I just, Oh, I don't just say y'all this one, something else. Can I say one thing before we leave <clears throat> last week? Um, I talked about, uh, we were talking about Ron DeSantis. We were talking about the raid on Mar-a-Lago and I talked about a clip that I had seen with Ron DeSantis, um, defending the FBI's raid of Mar-a-Lago and a pod save the people listener sent me a, a piece on Twitter to say that that clip that I saw was false. And so I want to just let you all know, Ron DeSantis did not defend the raid on Mar-a-Lago. I, like a whole lot of other people, were duped by a piece that somebody put together to make it look like that. And um, it's up on my Twitter page if you want to see it, at Henderson Kaya. Um, But I just wanted to make sure to clarify that what I thought I saw was not exactly what I saw. And uh, super thanks to the listener who um, hit me to it so that I could clarify. Thanks. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, The Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color-founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids' books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life, maybe that's yourself, to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts.
This week, I had the honor of talking to award-winning investigative reporter J. David McSwain to talk about his new book, Pandemic Inc., Chasing the Capitalists and Thieves Who Got Rich While We Got Sick. Now, it's no secret that the government was not prepared for a global pandemic under the Trump presidency, from PPP to EDD, loan fraud, have been a hot topic in the media and online, but you might not know about some of the details around the stockpile, what the Trump people did with what we did have in reserves. I learned a ton. The government ended up giving out tons of contracts to all these people who were fraudsters, and now the Biden team's trying to clean that mess up. But there were a lot of details here that reminded me that when we vote for people, we actually need to be looking for some sort of administrative acumen, too, because it's not all random TV interviews, as you and I learned all too well, again, with the last president. Here we go. David, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks for having me. Now, I learned a ton in the book, so I have a lot of questions. We won't be able to cover them all, which is a good thing because people need to go out and buy the book. Did you know that you always wanted to be a reporter? And how did you start to write about the pandemic or or the fraud in the pandemic more so? Uh, yeah, I did know from a young age that I wanted to be a reporter. I was actually involved in my high school newspaper, and uh, that's sort of how I got started and same in college, did the, the newspaper thing there, and then have uh, moved my way around the business through uh, Colorado, Florida, Texas, and, and Washington, D.C. Um, you know, in answer to the second part of your question, uh, you know, basically had this realization in March 2020 that, uh, you know, this was going to be a major historical event, you know, uh, one of the largest, if not the largest news events in my lifetime. And like every other reporter w was just trying to find my place in it. And, uh, you know, it was daunting. If you think about it, I mean, this was the first time in history that really every journalist in the world is on the same story. Uh, you know, 9-11, you know, sports writers kept doing their thing. You know, it didn't, uh, this was bigger. Everything uh, was affected by COVID. Um, you know, and I, and I just sort of fell back on the tried and true uh, method of following the money. I'm here in Washington, D.C., and, you know, the CARES Act had been passed. And it was pretty clear that, you know, billions and billions of dollars were going to be spent addressing this uh, public health crisis, this, you know, real nightmare. And just having been a reporter for a while, I had a sense right away that there's no way they can vet all of these people. And that's a lot of money and people are going to come out of the woodwork and try to get rich and uh, just started taking a look at the contracts that were awarded, crunching some data along with colleagues and, you know, the questionable companies really just popped out right away. And it was a matter of what can we confirm from our uh, from our homes, because, uh, you know, the country was really locked down at, at that point. Now, I learned a ton. And in the in the early chapters, you talk a lot or I learned a lot about the stockpile. I think I'd like seen people talk about the stockpile, but I like didn't really know anything about the stockpile. And then I read and I'm like, oh, the man is like they gave away all the stuff in the stockpile. You know, I didn't know anything about. Um, oh, what's the process called? Sequestration. Would you talk about in the book and mm -hmm. like how that impacted the stockpile? Can you tell us why the stockpile? Why is that such a big part of uh, this story and what happened with the stockpile. And did you already know this stuff about the, the national stockpile before you wrote this book or did you learn in this process? Uh, well, I didn't know m about the stockpile before the pandemic hit, uh, you know, but certainly caught up pretty quickly and, and well before it 
became time to write the book. But the, the reason the stockpile matters is by the time COVID hit, the federal government had something like 1% of what it needed to address just the initial onslaught. And we're talking masks, gloves, gowns, really basic materials for frontline workers. So the history of how we got there seemed pretty crucial to me because it was that shortage that spurred the Trump administration and the federal government to just start throwing billions you know, around anyone and everyone. And what I found in digging into it is we really should have been prepared. The writing was on the wall. I mean, this was prophesized by uh, you know, the science community within the federal government uh, that there is going to be a pandemic. We are going to need these things and we need to stock up. And, and what I found in digging into it is, you know, it really the, the idea comes together uh, during Bill Clinton's administration. It really grew under George W. Bush's administration, uh, particularly because of 9-11 and wanting to be ready for a bioterrorist attack. And that really becomes the focus. Uh, but there's all this funding, all this focus on stockpiling for a national emergency. And then it sort of falls to the wayside. And then you see the the sort of Tea Party wave of 2010 and this uh, just pervasive idea that, that f- from the right that we need to get in the way of anything the Obama administration wants to do, particularly Obamacare. And the agency charged with rolling out the Affordable Care Act, happened to be Health and Human Services, and tucked down way in their budget is the national stockpile. So Republicans really forced this situation where Democrats had to compromise uh, to keep to avoid a government shutdown and all kinds of, of things that happen when you don't pay your bills. And the stockpile was just one of many, many of those compromises. And that really hobbled funding for the next decade uh, so we didn't have all of the things we needed. And you can just sort of see it every step of the way. We we knew perfectly well this was going to happen, but the politics of our era uh, really hobbled us when we needed it most. Is the stockpile in one place or is the stockpile like a euphemism for like a million different buildings all around the country? Just I didn't know. Yeah. So the stockpile is not in one place. The idea is that you can have a regionalized response very rapidly. So you wouldn't want a stockpile in Atlanta trying to address an issue in Seattle. So you had uh, a dozen at the time, maybe more now, warehouses, uh, warehouses sort of strategically placed about the country uh, to respond to regionalized things. And, and we found ourselves in the worst case scenario where it wasn't regionalized. I mean, this was a national emergency. Every state needed these supplies and they needed them now. Uh, so it was all that much worse. Now, also the chapter, um, there's always a guy. I don't know if that's what it, I think that's what the chapter is called, but that's definitely like the tag I got from. Like, that's what I remember. And the guy who like made masks, had a mask factory, the story about uh, when people had the the like special orders, it pinged his daughter's phone and <clears throat> and everything went to her. Um, how did you find that guy? Like, how did you even, I'm, I was like fascinated by that story. And it was such a powerful reminder, A, that there is always a guy and that like, we should listen to those people because they often tell us the truth. But how did you find him? Like, did you, did I just miss that story in the national story? Yeah, I mean, so this was amid uh, probably the hardest 
you know, news cycle uh, of probably our lifetimes where it was just you could not keep up. Every day was its own trauma with whatever press conference was coming out of the White House and whatever news we were hearing out of Seattle, probably most at this point. Um, but the, the chapter is actually called We're in Deep Shit. And uh, that is a quote from Mike Bowen, who, who is the guy. He's this uh, sort of gruff uh, guy down in Texas who was uh, running this mask manufacturing manufacturing uh, plant of which there there's like one left in the whole country. And he'd been warning for more than a decade in letters and, uh, you know, through an organization he formed that if we're hit with a pandemic, we don't have domestic capacity to address it. We don't have enough masks made on shore. The federal government needs to invest in this because China is responsible for 90% of our mask supply and they're going to choke us off. And, it was really eerie going through his correspondence over the decade before COVID hit that he'd really called it. He said, this is exactly what's going to happen. And when it did happen, he did make some headlines, uh, you know, because he had tried to negotiate with the Trump administration, particularly trade advisor Peter Navarro, to ramp up domestic capacity and get some masks moving and at an affordable price. And and what we ended up doing for a lot of different reasons uh, was ignoring his warnings, including, you know, even after we knew he was right, and instead relying on, you know, these brokers, these mercenaries who were fighting for masks and charging seven times the price. And ultimately, most of them were coming out of China anyway. So he, he was he was sort of the Cassandra in this story who really had uh, sounded the alarm and no one listened. I'm going through my notes. I, I read the book uh, on PDF, so I have like all these highlighted notes. But Peter Navarro is probably the character that I knew the least about. As a, I mean, I didn't know Matt, the Bowen guy either, but I learned about him. But Peter Navarro seems to have had a huge influence and was moving a whole lot of things through. And, um, and I'm interested in how you think about, is he still around? Is he like, is, is he still in Trump world? It looks like he, you know, some people believed him in the moment. Some people didn't. He definitely moved a lot of contracts through. Is he still a character in the political space? Oh, yeah. He, he's very much still a character. He, uh, you know, not long ago was actually, uh, you know, arrested for failure to appear before Congress. You know, he was among those who was subpoenaed to testify uh, in the January 6th hearings. And, and he defied that order and, and you know, sort of less prominently displayed in you know, in, in our news cycles, he still is at the center of the congressional inquiry into, um, you know, the coronavirus response at large. And I didn't know much about him either, other than some of his, you know, histrionics uh, that, you know, play on Fox News and elsewhere. But the more I dug into it, the more I realized he, at, at, on one hand, was one of the first people within the Trump administration to acknowledge the threat. The administration was in denial and much to the detriment of all of us, uh, pretending that this wasn't happening. He was sounding the alarm saying, you know, this is going to be bad. People are going to die. We need to stock up. We need to start spending money, uh, which, you know, he, he struggled to get traction with the, the Trump administration. So he did something remarkable. He just kind of inserted himself into federal purchasing, uh, which you don't see. You don't see, you know, uh, people working in an appointed office, the White House. Uh, or, or appointed to a political office in the White House, uh, ordering who gets checks and who gets deals uh, 
from the federal government. It, it, that's it, it breaks all the rules, and it's it's very it's remarkable historically significant. And in doing so, he got some things moving, but he, he awarded some weird contracts that are still being investigated. Uh, the federal government lost money, had to recoup money, uh, and then meanwhile, people like Mike Bowen, who had a legitimate product to sell at a uh, you know at a fair price weren't getting contracts because he didn't get along. So he, he really just kind of put himself in the middle of this. And he's quite a character. He's very brusque. He's, he's really known for being sort of an outlandish guy. Uh, but inserting himself, he, he sort of muddied the waters even further. And it began to look like the Trump administration was just picking winners and losers uh, all over the place, uh, which was further complicated by Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law, inserting himself into how the stockpile was working. So uh, it, it just became a real mess. And there were these characters in the middle of it. And I tried to sort of, you know, guide readers through uh, that mess that got us to the point that we all remember in March 2020 when nurses didn't have masks. There's this great line on page 79 into 80 where you say, uh, or there's this great paragraph, but the lessons is, I was like, that is good. Uh, He's a blunt instrument, call him prickly, call prickly by some, worse by others. He he just has that thing, you know, the thing, a persistence beyond reason, the confidence to outlast enemies and weather embarrassment, which only delusion or supernatural faith or both can provide. And I was like, when I read that, I was like, I can totally see this guy. Like, I can see this person in the White House. Yeah, we've, we've all met that guy in some in some way. Yeah, you're just like, ah. So, and let's talk about you. you there's a whole portion about the Kushner kids. Uh, and one of the stories that I was like, you got to be kidding me, is the guy who responded to the tweet, like, I can make all mm-hmm. the things. And you're like, this guy's 75 followers. Like, why did this? Uh, do you think that the Kushner kids were... Like, did they not care? Do you think they were overconfident? Like, what what was it that made them sort of just waste so much money? I think there's a few answers to that. Uh, you know, you know, one is an arrogance that really um, it was was persistent throughout the Trump administration from the beginning. Trump had even run on, you know, this concept of draining the swamp. And what that really meant when you apply it to federal government is really lacking a, a respect for expertise and thinking you have all of the answers. And then you add to that this, you know, sort of blind adherence to free market capitalism. You know, the market will solve it. Uh, we've made money in, you know, within the confines of, of, of American capitalism we know better than the government and emergency managers, uh, you know, would, would tell you in a crisis like this, you do not want to leave things to the free market because you're going to have exactly what we had inflated prices. You're going to have goods that aren't working. Uh, you're going to have States competing against one another. Uh, and you know, that's been pretty well forecasted. And yet the Trump administration came in and said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to handle this. And Jared Kushner, um, you know, brought in a bunch of well-to-do people from Goldman Sachs and other consultant, you know, uh, and financial companies to help identify products. And, and they just really had no sense of those supply chains. They'd had no access to, like, they couldn't cut a check for the federal government. So people who actually knew what they were doing within the pandemic response were like, what the hell are these guys doing here? And uh, you know, they were eventually sort of relegated to taking in, you know, all the tips. And there were just thousands. And I fielded a bunch of these myself. 
of people who claim to have masks in a warehouse and probably didn't. Uh, you know, but in a few really high profile examples, like the ventilator uh, or, uh, example that you've mentioned, they referred, uh, you know, that guy who tweeted at the president to uh, New York State, which immediately awarded a contract thinking that FEMA had vetted this guy. And uh, they actually paid up front in this instant and uh, instance and, and are now having to to claw that back. I haven't looked at the case in a few months, but uh, yeah, it just created this this real mess. And you had really alienated the people who were experts who knew what was going on. And it was, you know, these people who just said, you know, we understand free markets. We're going to direct this uh, sort of getting in the way. Now, one of the things that I also didn't know was about uh, Governor Abbott. Like, I mean, I, I remember Governor Abbott on TV and in Texas is Texas, uh, but I had no clue sort of the range of decisions he did or did not make and like why he matters. Why did you devote a whole section to Abbott? Uh, well, partly because uh, a decent chunk of the book it occurs in Texas. That's where, you know, following some of these scams had, had led me. But also I was a reporter in Texas for five years and had covered the Abbott administration and the legislature. So I knew it really well. And, you know, had watched with interest, you know, his decision making early in the pandemic and was actually surprised that, you know, early on, he essentially does call for uh, he doesn't call it a lockdown, but he follows the blue states and says we got to shut down bars and, you know, and other things. And you sort of see that what, what, what appeared to be a really strong and even controversial decision just sort of wither away under the politics to which he subjects himself, which is Fox News, his own lieutenant governor, uh, you know, people who can who can really uh, use conservative media to, to pressure him. And it really falls apart. And he, you know, and he makes this very eyes open decision to reopen bars and salons, uh, really caving to that pressure uh, at a time when it was extremely dangerous, cases were were really high. We had no vaccine. The public health, uh, you know, apparatus had not really had a chance to catch up from that first wave. So I wanted to bring in, you know, the politics of these decisions. You know, caving to pressure from from businesses and from from the far right because they had a profound effect on our ability to you know, catch up to the need in terms of supplies uh, and tamp down caseloads so that nurses, you know, could make that one N95 last for two weeks. Now, one of the things I was also struck by was that there weren't a lot of people who got super in trouble, it seems like. Do you think that with the task force or the whatever Biden has put together to hold people accountable, do you think that that'll catch some of these people who like lied about having masks, who didn't have the ventilators, who like completely made up their ability to get things from China? Or do you think we really did? It's just like that, we just got to let that go and it'll only be PPP, like sort of the personal loan fraud? Or do you think we'll catch these people? Uh, well, right now it feels like a little bit of both. Uh, you know, there is one character I focus on a lot just you know because I had a really close up view uh, you know, who was ultimately, you know, convicted of crimes, uh, you know, for lying to the federal government about having supplies and, uh, you know, folks who got uh, paycheck protection program loans, who, who lied about having employees. 
they were sort of the easiest to catch. So there were some high profile examples of that. But there's a pretty monumental effort going on right now under the Biden administration and within the federal government uh, to catch up to all of the fraud because it was just that much. And the mentality, uh, both at the federal and state level uh, and even local levels, really became, you know, lives are at stake. Let's throw money out and ask questions later. And, you know, it, it was a bonanza for fraudsters. So I think we're going to see more accountability, but it's really going to be a cleanup effort. And, you know, there, we're going to find people who got yachts, you know, uh, in 2020 uh, with ill-gotten gains uh, in 2025. Now, the other thing, the history that I just didn't know was about the vaccines. Like I had never heard of, um, I'm on page 233, but Dr. Carrico, I didn't know anything about this story. It seems like the one thing that they got right with throwing some money around and shout out to the doctors for developing a technique that allowed us to get the vaccines. It looks like the vaccines was like one of the few things that they actually did right, even if he sabotaged the vaccines later and it was like, don't take them or you know, drink bleach or you know, let the sunlight get into your lungs, which were not strategies that worked. Yeah. How do you think about what happened with the vaccine as like maybe, am I right to think of it as a success story or is this just like, it was sort of probably inevitable given that the research was sort of around and it was the right moment? Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I think you'd have a hard time making the argument that Operation Warp Speed wasn't a success because we turned around uh, vaccines that are highly effective really quickly. I mean, within basically a year of having, you know, the genetic uh, information needed and clearing the hurdles with, you know, uh, agencies like the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, so I think from that perspective, it's definitely a success. And part of the reason I wanted to focus on it was it affected all of us. And there were a lot of people who were at the right place at the right time who made billions and billions of dollars as a result of that. And at the same time, uh, that kept us from, you, you know, that profit motivation, patents, things like that, kept us from having a real global solution to a pandemic, you know, to a virus that doesn't care about our national borders. Uh, and, and I think that's something we need to consider down the line, you know, as we prepare for the next one. And some of that has alleviated itself with just, you know, more time and, and other options uh, for vaccines. But that profit motivation was substantial. The federal government had really funded a lot of the early research that led to the vaccine. When COVID hit, they funded the, the, uh, you know, the studies and the manufacturing of it and then paid for the deployment of it. And yet private corporations and their, their uh, you know, insider shareholders are the people who got really, really rich from it. So I don't make the argument in the book that capitalism writ large is bad. Uh, just that was this the most, you know, in terms of the vaccine, was this the most equitable way to do this? And did it have to come along with such obscene profits, uh, you know, for a select few people? Now, at the end of the book, uh, you know, one of the cool things about your book is that literally every step of the way I learned something new and I was like, Okay, cool. And at the end, uh, you talk about the nursing home. I mean, you talk about a lot of things, but the nursing homes is the thing that like stuck out to me. And I will just read two things. One is, as you said, about 70% of all U.S. nursing homes are for profit. Legitimately blew my mind. Like did not know it was that much. That's crazy. 
But this paragraph was like, oh my goodness. One 2020 study examined more than 18,000 nursing homes, about 10% of them owned by private equity and found nonprofit versus profit can mean the difference between life and death. Those researchers discovered that short-term mortality, people dying not long after being placed in a nursing home, was 10% higher at facilities owned by private equity. That is yeah. wild. I mean, so can you talk to us about why you include it? Why was why are the COVID had an impact on everything? Why mm. were the nursing homes a key part of how you tell this story? Because they're a really uh, accessible example of the systemic failures, not just within our healthcare system, but within you know, just within how we take care of people. Um, when you have profit motivation motivators in things like nursing homes, how do you increase your profit? You spend less money. And that manifests itself in having fewer doctors and nurses, having less skilled doctors and nurses, having them work you know, longer hours for less pay, and you see a decline in quality of care. Uh, and, you know, I didn't want to write a chapter on like the merits of universal health care because that could be, you know, a five volume book, you know, ver- you know, versus, um, you know, the, the American healthcare system. Nursing homes are something that it's just pretty basic. When you add those profit motivators, quality of care declines and there are real consequences just day to day. You add a virus that targets uh, elderly and infirm people uh, with an astounding mortality rate, and you're really going to see that highlighted. And and we did. And no journalist I know who covers healthcare was at all surprised by what we were seeing. And you know, you remember in those first months, the really scary stories were coming out of Kirkland, uh, you know, the nursing home near Seattle. Uh, and we just saw that over and over and over. So I wanted to take just a quick systemic view uh, of of how that model really endangers people, uh, you know, in in the context of a pandemic. I also didn't know that there were federal regulators of nursing homes until I read about um, the the Medicare, Medicaid people going to the Brighton facility. Um, Yeah, maybe it's because they don't do all that much. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I never heard that story about federal money. Okay, I guess that's why. Okay, cool. so there are a couple of things that we ask everybody. The first is, what do you say to people who feel like they did all the things, right? They call, they email, they testify, da 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 and the world still hasn't changed for them. Or the people in this context who like, you know, I think about all the essential employees we had to go, all the people who like, they didn't get to stay home and like they didn't get to, and their families got screwed by this. What do you say to people who sort of read things like this and, and lose hope in the belief that things can get better? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard when you take the pandemic as a whole, it's it's hard to feel optimistic. It, it highlighted, uh, you know, in, in high contrast, the inequities in our entire way of life, our entire system, in infrastructure, in healthcare, in education. Uh, we know that story by now. We've all felt it in some way or another. Uh, you know, ideally this would serve as a lesson of how to improve some of those systems, for instance, for, you know, for-profit nursing homes and the oversight of them and the motivators in, in that arena. Uh, but, but more broadly, I, you know, this book w- was meant to really be a blueprint of what not to do when we're faced with the crisis. You know, don't let political pressure uh, force you to open bars earlier. Uh, something, in fact, you know, 
Governor Greg Abbott of Texas later said he regretted. Uh, you know, I just kind of wanted to get it all down. And there have been a few books uh, from this era that focused on the good guys and the vaccine or whatever. And I, and I thought, well, why don't we focus on the bad guys and the things we didn't do well uh, so that maybe we can learn from those mistakes. But I mean, it's going to take baby steps. It's going to take community action, um, local leaders pressing their own, uh, you know, their own public health entities. Um, you know, we're still fighting over what schools should really do. I mean, these are all kind of battles on the local level. And we are seeing, um, you know, the, the federal government is now painfully aware that the stockpile needs to be beefed up. Uh, you know, some of those things uh, should improve just by virtue of having been through this. And the other question that we ask everybody is, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Yeah, I mean, th- this is true in, in life and, and also in my work. Uh, never assume that you know everything. Uh, I, I approach every story with the assumption that I don't know half of what's going on because it's the things that you learn that ultimately become the story. And those are the things that, uh, you know, will change your perception and, and how you proceed. And I think a lot of the lessons, at least, you know, sort of more conceptually of the pandemic, particularly with them among our leadership was, you know, a real sense of, of arrogance in terms of knowing the solutions, knowing the answers, uh, when in fact there should have been more deference to people who have studied pandemics uh, and and people who understand science. And uh, I think that's, I think this country would do a whole lot better uh, if we stopped assuming we, we really know everything and started listening to each other. Where do people go to stay in touch with you, to follow you, to make sure that they are up on the next thing you write? How do people stay in touch? Uh, well, I'm on Twitter at David McSwain. Uh, I, I continue to work for ProPublica, where I publish stories. Uh, and as well, I have a, uh, an email, or I'm sorry, a website, davidmcswain.com, where uh, you can find contact information. Boom. Well, we consider a friend of the pod. Can't wait to have you back. Everybody, go check out the book and read uh, the article. I actually first read, I didn't realize this was you, because you wrote an article about being on the plane with him. Yeah, that was really what set it all off in the early months, yeah. I read that. And when I started reading the book, I was like, I know this guy already because I read that article. Okay, cool. We can see you from the pod. Can't wait to have you back. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pati the Brewer is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Veronica Simonetti and executive produced by me. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson.